Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Hi, true believers. This is Stan Lee, and I want to be sure to see you at my Los Angeles Super Comic Con on October 28th to 30th. And be sure to use code MELTDOWN for 12% off your tickets. Excelsior! Hello, this is Matt Kennedy from Pod Sequentials with Matt Kennedy, and we have another giveaway. So if you go to the Meltdown Comics website, which is meltcomics.com, and you uh, subscribe to their newsletter, you can be entered into a contest to win tickets for the Guillermo del Toro 35mm film screening program at LACMA. You've heard us talk about the At Home with Monsters show on the program, and this is the film program that goes with it. So if you go and find the screening that you want to see, whether it's the October 21st Chrono screening or the Pan's Labyrinth October 28th screening and then there's other uh, screenings of things like Bride of Frankenstein and the two Hellboy movies Pacific Rim Crimson Peak and um, other amazing things that he's programmed Um, you just need to put a link to it on your Facebook page um, and take a screen grab and post it over with us on Pod Sequentialism as well and uh, see if we can't get you some awesome tickets Hello and welcome to Pod Sequentialism. I am your host, Matt Kennedy, and today I have a very special guest, uh, Mr. Houston Huddleston. And for those of you who are unfamiliar, Houston is the principal behind the um, soon-to-launch sci-fi museum and also the horror museum. And um, I thought he'd be the perfect guest, actually, for our 50th episode because in many ways he is the personification of the principal of this program, which is a combination of um, the kind of DIY aesthetic that we often support and promote, but also um, a fan who kind of made it, um, and in more ways than one, as you'll find out very quickly. So, um, Houston, welcome to the program. Hello, thank you. And um, I guess I should point out that um, I first met you as a film licensor about, oh, 12 or 15 years ago when I was at Blue Underground uh, with Anchor Bay, and um, you, you're from a film family of sorts, I guess you could say. Oh, definitely. Yeah, your um, father was nominated for an Oscar. Right, right. And for music. And um, which, uh, your mom sang the song? Well, yeah, that was for Walt Disney's Robin Hood. And my dad wrote the song Love, Mm -hmm. and my mom sang it. Mm -hmm. And it was up for an Oscar. But he also wrote the song Everybody Wants to Be a Cat for the Aristocats. Aristocats, yeah. Which is a kind of a standard. Mm-hmm. Um, and he did the whole score for The Rescuers mm-hmm. when it was going to be Louis Prima. Right. And then Louis got sick mm-hmm. and they changed the whole story throughout all the songs. But on the recent Rescuers Blu-ray, there's a whole introduction by someone, uh, the co-director of Little Mermaid, uh, right. talking about my father. And it's really wonderful. And they play a couple of the songs with... 
Um, and I think you can also download my dad's original demos from Disney on This iTunes. is Floyd Huddleston. Right, Floyd Huddleston. Yep. And he also wrote like 550 jingles or more <laughs> he, uh, like that more, were recorded, yeah. that ran on radio, that ran on television. Right. And um, well, He owned a company called Pepper Records back in the early, late 50s, early 60s, mm-hmm. and that's where my parents met mm-hmm. because they were looking for a girl singer. Right. And my mom literally had just gotten out of high school into college, and she was on Arthur Godfrey's talent scouts wow. and my grandmother my father's mother heard her on on the show saw her on the show and said uh floyd you, the little girl from uh, fulton kentucky you got a, a check and so dad called uh, fulton the operator at fulton kentucky and said yeah, there's a singer and they said nancy adams <laughs> immediately because she, she was, was. The old, right yeah but no it, it, there's a long legacy there and dad also recorded songs or had songs recorded by frank sinatra Peggy lee uh, doris day ella uh, Sarah Vaughan, um, down the list from pretty much every famous singer of that 40s, 50s, and 60s period up till rock. Now, you also have a pretty interesting resume in that um, you have written and produced multiple pilots, um, gotten dozens of meetings with like BBC yeah. and and other stations. I've actually done some acting for you in some of um, the projects that you've Unfortunately, done. Unfortunately, you did. Yeah, right. <laughs> you you struck, struck that from your resume immediately. Yeah. <laughs> no, I'd, I'd probably I'd probably put it on there. The um, and... <laughs> you were you were having your your buku, buku beads around your arm and yep, uh, yep the you, tiger you, beads and holding a and holding a gun. Yes, I was a hitman, and it was um, done as kind of a Keystone Cops chase scene, which was great. And you, you have um, a friend of yours. Is it is it Mark? Who's been a frequent collaborator of yours over the years? God, I, I can't think of anyone because everybody heads the other direction when <laughs> they hear. Like a good five or six with you. Um, I I don't I don't remember who that. Oh, anyways. is. Yeah. Well, um, I, I I bring this up because the um, one thing that people who don't know about the the art of the pitch, shall we say, in Hollywood, mm-hmm. is that um, the way that things get made is constantly changing. That um, what used to be a bunch of guys who were on the lot sitting in office, um, kind of spitballing ideas, and then kind of walking down the hallway into the president of the um, the studio or um, the network's office and being like, hey, we got this thing. That quite simply just doesn't happen anymore. And oftentimes the... Um, the networks don't own the programs that they produce that they license, and they, they that means that someone has to produce a product. Um, it goes to pilot. From pilot, it gets um, nodded for more episodes, or it goes to series. And um, generally, after it's been picked up by by a network or by a, a larger production company that does a sort of wholesaling of multiple shows to networks and other and other outlets. And so, you kind of started producing your own content and um and it's kind of left a center for a lot of american audiences and it kind of shows that you grew up watching a lot of european stuff certainly the things that would appear in a lot of comedians resumes like monty python and things like that but you sort of had that black mirror aesthetic nailed before black mirror and i remember reading a lot of your scripts and they, they are sometimes like way way out in left field but really really interesting like i think for for genre fans and people who appreciate the types of things that i like and you know people who like grant morrison or or people who like um you know numerous of the kind of new tv guys that that everybody's kind of going gaga over um i think that if you had had access to the types of budgets that right. they had that you'd be one of these people that would be like the David Lynch of of modern television. Well, thank you very much. Uh the you know, I 
the basic problem was I went to England thinking that I would find people hip enough to appreciate what I was doing mm-hmm. and that there would be a market for it. And there was a semi-market for yeah. it. There was a show called Black Books. There was a show called uh, Big Train, which Simon Pegg came out of. Mm-hmm. There, there's sketch Before comedy. Uh, yeah. yeah, exactly, right. And space was a little more mainstream, strangely. Yeah. Kind of like a parody of Red Dwarf. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Which I mean, all, I love... Red Dwarf is kind of a yeah. a very small, in the grand scheme of things, thing, or it certainly was when space was, was hitting the air. I guess so. I could, no, it had been around. I think it had been around about... Ten years, because even Roddenberry was a fan of uh, Red Dwarf. I That's mean, they, shocking. They have he was. He, they had little inside jokes in the uh, in the Elcar systems on the Enterprise that one R D D W W F and that yeah. kind of stuff. Well, I couldn't here's, here's where I lose half of my audience and say that um, I haven't seen Doctor Who since Tom Bank- Baker was the Doctor. I saw one episode. I'm going to walk Dwarf. out right now. I know, actually, right? I saw one episode. I think of, of Red Dwarf, and I was kind of scratching my head, like, why does this have such a falling? That was at Boscon '86. Mm-hmm. But um, I think that when I say that it had remained kind of a small thing is that it's certainly not Star Trek. It's certainly not Doctor Who. And it's kind of surprising that a show would launch as a parody of a show, become much more popular than the show that it was parodying in a lot of ways. I wouldn't go that far, but space I mean... Space is it just... It's, it reads through in the numbers that the sales on um, on media for space, the, uh, no pun intended, right. dwarfs Red Dwarf. Well, also, it got the huge backing of Tarantino and yeah. Kevin Smith yeah. uh, rallying it at the Comic-Con uh, panel they had yeah. about three or four years ago. Uh, I don't think Tarantino was there. Kevin Smith was definitely there. Yeah. Simon Pegg was there yeah. pre-Star Trek. Mm-hmm. And uh, what it, was it pre-Star Trek? I can't remember. No, it was probably just on the teetering of Star Trek. Right. And he came out there and he started doing the fake shooting with the guns with the fingers. Yeah. And the audience jumped out of their chairs and started doing it back and they all started falling down on the ground dead. Yeah. I, I was blown away that this would happen. But, but it was a hipper show too. Yeah, and um, this becomes sort of important and, and your appreciation of these things becomes important to what is going to be the focus of this discussion. Right. Which is that um, at a certain point you discovered that the holodeck from Star Trek The Next Generation was going up for sale, that it was in danger of being destroyed. It was the bridge. Yeah, the bridge. the Enterprise bridge, right. And you bought it. Right. Well, I uh, what happened was I was working in an office that was on Highland and is no longer there. I think they bulldozed it, but mm-hmm. uh, near me was the company that was dealing with Paramount, and Paramount and CBS had just split, mm-hmm. and there was contention, and there were people getting fired and all this stuff. And they told me they were closing shop. And I said, darn, now I'll never get to turn my living room into the bridge of the Enterprise. And the guy said, be careful what you wish for. And he pulled out these blueprints and showed me that there was an entire set Mm -hmm. sitting outside and had been sitting outside for five years. Outdoors. Outdoors, outside of a warehouse in the back. Just like, you guys going to pick this crap up? It's like Long Beach or Van Nuys or something. Right. It was Long Beach. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And... Near that uh, the the that wonderful restaurant that sh- has that's like an old in, uh, like a timber type thing with a right, smoke right. Type top thing yeah yeah um, <clears throat> so anyway I went there and I just floored the Captain Picard's chair had a big rip through the back of it and is laying bird poop on it mm-hmm. and you know uh, there were bugs and it, it was just disgusting mm-hmm. and so I went and I looked around they said oh that too and 
I realized there were flats from the original series bridge as well, Captain Kirk's, and I... Uh, neither were the actual original ones they used for the show. Those are long, long gone, bulldozed, you right. know, 20 years The original ago. series. Right. Yeah. The original series and Next Gen. Mm-hmm. Um, so they remade these in the late 90s so they could tour them and they made them out of fiberglass. So mm-hmm. had they been the original sets, they would have been made out of wood and completely destroyed. Yeah. Thank God these are fiberglass and hard metal and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. So I asked, I didn't know what I was going to do with it. I asked the guys uh, at the warehouse, how can I get this? They said, well, you pay for the shipping and it's yours. It gets it the hell off of our location. Win-win situation right. as far as they're concerned. Exactly. Yeah. And because it had been... Uh, it, because it had been dropped off and abandoned by CBS... Mm-hmm. The rights for the show and the set still remain, but the rights to get it and obtain it and restore it and display it were totally ours under fair use. Interesting. So I, I've since done a lot of uh, study about fair use and figuring out what to do, what not to do. Right. And, and it's kind of a, I mean, there are probably law offices that specialize in that type of thing because at least in this part of the world in Los Angeles it's important oh boy is it ever but it's also related to what you used to do in film licensing right I mean right. you have to know you know if someone's selling you something do they have the rights to sell it to you is there a chain of command and so it's that same type of exploration so it's almost perfect mm-hmm. I, I, I don't know I guess what I should say is if it had been anybody else but you I don't know if what has happened since would have come about. Probably and, not. I, I don't think I don't know anyone who is in a lifestyle situation that I can that I do have royalties coming in that I can put my entire time into this right. for four years and not get paid. Right. And to be crazy enough to have I, I there's some filter that is a part of me in my inherent nature that the I can look beyond things without getting a panic attack and right. thinking about, well, uh, I can lay things out, basically. I can figure out, okay, what's the absolute deadly worst that can happen? Am I going to go bankrupt? Okay, we don't want that to happen. Right. So I try to think of the other. If I don't, if this part doesn't work, who else do I go to? What are my other options? Right. So thank God that element of it for me, or I, I'd be I'd be sitting drooling in a back of a room by now, I'm sure. I remember speaking to Donald Glutt years ago, and this was, I think, right when you kind of changed your focus from just, and and originally you you really did just want this to be like your living room. You wanted to have this set and you wanted to fix it up and it was going to be the living room of the house that you live in. Well, it wasn't, uh, it was going to be a house that people could visit. It wasn't going to be. uh, But a livable museum, we'll say. Well, yeah, but I, I, I wanted to. I wanted. I didn't know where else I was going to put it. Right. And I wanted to make sure that I could do something where people could come visit, and it wasn't going to be some elitist rich person's house right. that oh, only Seth MacFarlane and his buddies can. Right. You know that's. Uh, but I raise this because yeah, I remember shortly after you had started to bring people onto the board when you realized okay, this is going to be a sci-fi museum, realizing there isn't one. Like mm-hmm. there isn't a sci-fi museum, and, yeah. and how how come there isn't one? And of course, the rules the rules of life, and especially the internet, are if you pinpoint something that doesn't exist, um, it must. And if um, you're the person who spotted this, then you must make it exist. So that, um, <laughs> but I ended up talking um, someplace. I don't remember where it was. To Donald Glut, and Donald Glut was saying that um, in describing you, in describing Houston Huddleston, he said he's like Richie Cunningham. If Richie Cunningham were really savvy. <laughs> 
<laughs> and um, I was like, that's uh-huh. kind of perfect. It's like you, you have that kind of like really friendly demeanor. Um, you are a super fan. Yeah. You know that um, anybody who's ever gone to any of the screenings that that used to host routinely, and I'm sure that they're a lot less common now that you've got so much on your plate. But that you would you would host a a series of films and shorts and TV shows and just odd stuff in um, a group of incredibly mixed company, um, <laughs> all of who probably knew you from completely different walks of life. Exactly. Yeah. And it was kind of a great situation to walk into and be like, I wonder how that person over there knows Houston. Mm-hmm. And they may be thinking, who is this guy? You know, and I wonder and which demographic of this audience is going to be hugely offended and hate me forever and leave, <laughs> from which what, some of them I'm did. About to show. Some people did, that's yeah. true. <laughs> and, um, and so, you know, not unlike the screenings I used to have in the disturbing movie night, yours was sort of different and like, like more delightful movie night type of thing. And um, you obviously have a huge love for music and musicals, right. and so that would be a lot of focus of what you would screen. But um, Alice in Wonderland, the adult musical, yes, yes, um, with music by Peter Matz, who did the Carol Burnett show, right. So I mean, and, yeah. and there's these these multiple and odd associations. I think have become signature to what interested you in a lot of finding these things in European cinema and finding these things in um, in more like cult or sci-fi or horror cinema. And, um, and on top of having purchased the rights to films that did provide royalties and that you did own and were able to license again and again um, in your later dealings as you become an adult and start exploring that as an option to um, for a career, that this is still built out of your inert fascination with what may be at this point, genetic, um, in an appreciation for movie music. That that's a very astute estimation. <laughs> no, I, I'd say definitely the preservation mm-hmm. and definitely the education and yeah. inspiration of people. And I, I was always trying to turn people into me in a certain sense of trying to. Exp- expound and expand their minds and their tastes and their viewership of music, films, art, literature, whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, Saying this as like the most straight edge person I've perhaps ever met in my life. Well, I, I yes, I, I am, I'm a Christian and I try to be as moral as I possibly can, but I'm not going to be like... Jerry Falwell was where he said, I'm, I ain't going to stick my head into a sewer to know that it's junk down there talking about uh, Scorsese's Passion of Christ. Was that? No. Yeah. Was that what it was called? Yeah. No, no not the Passion. Not it was, Passion. Um, it was Last Temptation. Temptation. Yeah. Last Which I wasn't a big fan of anyway, but regardless. A lot of New York accents in a movie that takes place in the Middle East. Yeah, exactly. Uh, who's... Uh, Harvey Keitel. Harvey Keitel. Yeah, Jesus! Yeah, right? Jesus! <laughs> you know, you thought he was going to go into the speech from uh, from Bad Lieutenant for a second. Or, or a taxi a, driver, yeah. he's a fine actor, but... Um, oh, no, I love... No, I, I, but, I get yeah. what you're saying, but I also, I, I bring it up because, yeah, you're definitely not a judgmental person at all, and I think anybody who follows your posts, I think that b- there may be some people who know that about you, you know, that you, that you, um, that you did grow up Christian, have Christian values, and um, they make these assumptions that you are going to be somehow prejudicial towards other um, section populations, cultures, creeds, and you immediately fire back and like, you know what, if... If that's what you think, then you probably don't want to follow these projects that I'm working on. You right. probably yeah. don't want to, you know, back um, my sci-fi museum, my horror museum, because 
um, we don't accept that type of of um, disparagement. Well, and I've, see, I've, I've yeah. seen you do that quite a bit, and I've always respected that. But I also mean that you know when you talk about expanding minds, you've never had a drink, you've never done drugs, and um, I've had wine at parties. I don't, but I'm not hung up on it. I do it mostly out of yeah, but I've never done drugs. Yeah, and so it, it's interesting to when you say expanding, you're really talking about it's like taking in this this medium of of film, uh, be it television, shot on film, shot on video, whatever, but taking that and viewing that in a way as a mind-altering substance mm. that it can be, that um, the way that I think people who really love film and especially love kind of the wacky stuff that, that, that we have in common and, and, and just appreciation of, of fine cinema that maybe other people haven't necessarily dedicated their lives to <laughs> in, the, in the ways yeah. that fools like us have, um, yeah. that we do see that as like the way that someone may think like, I'm going to go sit down in the corner and smoke some pot our thing would be like, I'm gonna. I've been waiting all week to watch this DVD. Mm. You know, I've put aside the amount of time that I need to be able to sit down and watch this, and I'm gonna have this this consciousness expanding experience of watching this movie. Be it you know Jodorowsky or um, you know Eric Romer, Fellini, Fellini or you know, yeah, Greenaway, yeah, exactly. But now, when you transition from and actually, when when you when you 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 buy this set, and you also bought another set, you bought the Submerged Atomic Submarine set, right? That came first. That was a right. uh, that was a terrible disaster, mm-hmm. and in fact, that almost did bankrupt me. I was yeah. depressed. I was almost suicidal. It was terrible. Twelve or eighteen thousand dollars or something. Um, I bought it for twelve grand, yeah. and it was worth about a million dollars. Is what it yeah. cost to build. And it, long story short, there was a movie that was supposed to shoot on it. I think it was Mission Impossible Three. I think it was Brad Bird's version, or four. And they went to Canada instead. And so I was stuck with a set and yeah. having to pay two thousand dollars a month Storage. rental. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so I, I got rid of it finally. Sold it to not a nice person, mm-hmm. and uh, who also tried to screw me over. <laughs> Uh, and I just said, to hell with this. Never again. I am never doing something stupid and idiot that's going to put a gun to my head. I, n- I never need to do this again. And then and a hey, month later. No, and then, yeah. Uh, <laughs> hey, there's this Enterprise bridge set that's sitting outside. And I just said, well, you know, this is something that's uh, that needs to be done. But and you really did dedicate the next how many years? It's been four years. It's been a little over four years. years. A little over four years. And um and this has wound up being kind of the the center of your life. Right. And um and because you have this thing, which is I, I think what many people would consider to be a very important sci fi totem, um, connected to a beloved series with perhaps more fans than any other series on earth. Except um, for Star Wars. It's pretty close though. Well Star that's Wars a TV Star Trek. Yeah, yeah, that's a TV series. Yeah, definitely series a TV versus series. movie for, for series, it definitely it wins. And um and so this transitions into a passion project that is really that goes beyond you and goes beyond this one thing and you realize that what you needed to do is start a museum. And so you you set up was it an LLC? Uh no no, a 501c3 nonprofit educational. Well, we're going to take our first quick break right there. Mm-hmm. And when we come back, we're going to talk about um, how the Sci-Fi Museum really launched, mm-hmm. um, how you managed to reach the large group of people that you did, uh, getting um, important celebrities involved and the fans. And then we're also going to talk about the Horror Museum. So uh, stay tuned for a word from one of our sponsors. And we'll be right back in just a moment on Pod Sequentialism with Matt Kennedy and my guest, Houston Huddleston. 
Hello and welcome back to Pod Sequentialism. I'm your host, Matt Kennedy. I have with me today Houston Huddleston, the principal behind the Sci-Fi Museum and the Horror Museum. Hi! <laughs> and we were just getting into how this started. So we did require that long setup and explaining, you know, how, how it became an idea. Now let's start from how it began as a a project. So that you have you have the um this set, the bridge set. You start embarking on finding ways to um to repair it. As probably first an idea of something you can tour from convention to convention before thinking like, okay, this needs to have a static location. No, uh, actually it was reversed. What happened was after I got it, I tried to find every millionaire, every rich, powerful person as possible Mm -hmm. in Hollywood to help restore it, to care about it, to to have the passion. None of them cared. People who were involved with the series didn't care. Right. Um, One of the actors said, I just sell the thing. I just auction off the, the, you know, this and that. And I said, but what about the rest of it? Okay. You can do that with the captain's chair, but what about uh, the ceiling parts and the, oh, I'll just throw it out. And I just, I didn't want that to happen. And so I got a phone call from, Wizard World back in 2012 asking if they could bring, if we could bring our captain's chair, which at that time wasn't completed, right? and a couple of the other chairs. And I said, well, I could bring the couple of the other chairs. And so I met the cast members there. Prince Spiner said, anything you need, let me know. Yeah. Uh, and that's not, you know, these people aren't easy, these, right. uh, these Star Trek actors. And so, not to say that they're not wonderful people, they are, but they're always getting asked to do things. Exactly. Yeah. Right. Right. And uh, you have to say no a lot of the time. Yeah. Hell, I have to say no some of the time, and I, you know, you can't get easier than I am. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> so anyway, I uh, uh, I realized that legally we could only do so much because we couldn't start a Star Trek museum. CBS would have just put us under the jail. Right. Um, so I talked to them and I said, what if we create a museum that's everything sci-fi mm-hmm. that has Star Trek, but Star Wars and Battlestar, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And they said, okay, we have no problem with that as long as you don't turn the bridge into something that it wasn't intended for, mm-hmm. that, uh, et cetera. So we followed they the rules. They didn't want you to have a theme restaurant or something right, you know, on the bridge right. and have that be the, the corner piece. Or make it an interactive bridge. They didn't want that. Gotcha. Because it wasn't intended for that. And right. whether you believe or not, uh, suddenly they came up with an interactive D-bridge two years later, huh. which is presently at the uh, near the Intrepid. No, it's not the Intrepid. It's space shuttle. It's the Enterprise Space Shuttle in New York. Gotcha. Uh, but, you know, it's theirs to do, even though, <clears throat> you know, they were inspired by us in some way, whether they want to admit it or not. Um, so I realized... It could be bigger and better if it was everything. Right. And all of our board members, including Andy Probert, who designed not only the Enterprise, but the Back to the Future DeLorean and the Cylon Centurions and, you know, all these famous people and Ronald E. Moore, the producer, mm-hmm. all these guys agreed, yes, make it a sci-fi museum. Don't just stick to Star Trek. Mm-hmm. So you got it. Uh, we lost a couple of board members because of that. They thought I was out of my effing mind. And... <laughs> Uh, they thought they said this is going to fail. Meaning fanboy. Yes, they were out of my. <laughs> I was out of my fanboy mind. Uh, no, they, uh, they, I, I, we kept the people who were the true believers. That's yeah. the important part. And Bill Shatner helped us. George mm. Decay helped us. He helped us through his tweets and such. Yeah, yeah. George has a huge following. We got fifty thousand dollars in three days for our Kickstarter because yeah. of him. And so I told him, I said, immediately, we're going to have a George Decay Day because Mm -hmm. of that, you know, in our museum every year. Yeah. And so 
that is how that happened, and we just grew and grew. Universal donated $12 million in props, at least, to us, including the full-size bubble ship from Oblivion. Mm -hmm. And I just met with Sony, and I think we're going to be getting some really exceptional stuff from them. Mm -hmm. Because other than a new Sony museum that they're starting mm -hmm. on the lot, it's not a huge thing, but it's a place to show their history. Right. But there's still a lot more big stuff that needs to be restored and they don't have the budget to yeah. do it. So I, that's where I come in mm -hmm. and it's still theirs. You know, we're not, it's not a perpetuity thing, right. but it's borrowed. It's exactly. Promised. Yeah. But it's going to be seen. Right. That's the important thing. Everything we're doing will be in, will be seen, taken photos of, taken photos with and inspire people to do something greater than what they could imagine. Yeah. It doesn't matter even if it's a replica as long as there is something there that they can then not just children but mm -hmm. all ages. Yeah. I had people from all over the world telling me they wanted to be a part of our museum, yeah. they wanted to quit their job and work immediately at our museum when it opens. I, uh, talk about pressure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I remember when, um, I think it was the first year you were at Comic-Con, mm -hmm. and you had talked about finding plans for the ship, and that, that you might, you know, that there are there exist plans and people don't exactly know what everything is, and it hasn't quite been explained. And it brought me back in time to watching Galaxy Quest, right. where people speculate about, well, this might be this, or this might be that. And um, it was the first time my wife met you. Mm -hmm. And so I was like, oh, we have to go see Houston's panel. He's going to be giving a talk on, on the Sci-Fi Museum. And so she had never been to a science fiction convention before in her life. Ah. And my wife is Japanese. Right. And um, and so you were one of the three or four panels I think we went to. And, you know, <laughs> James Gunn was there that year. Right, and, uh, right. Ryan Ridley was, was, was the first, I think, um, um, press conference slash fan event that they had done for um, for the, the Cartoon Network show. Um that Ryan Ridley writes for Rick and Morty. Rick and Morty. Oh yeah. Thank you, Mason. And um, and so we we had good reasons to go to different things. And um, so we're sitting down in on in your your panel there, and you're like, we actually have plans for the Enterprise bathroom, and people went ballistic. Right. And my my wife turns and looks at me, and she's like, I've never seen people so excited about a bathroom before. <laughs> and I mean, people were like losing their minds, like tears of joy. I'm not exaggerating. Right. Tears true. of joy coming down fanboy faces as they as they stand up and high five each other, and things fall off of their laps. And and and, and my <laughs> wife was at once a little afraid and very fascinated. <laughs> and I was like, Yeah, I was like, This is this is a really big deal. And um, I think that really gave me the um a different perspective than I'd had about it and I know you're a very capable guy and I knew that this was gonna this was gonna be a thing what I didn't realize at that already at that early point was what a vacuum there was mm. for somebody like you who who was wasn't as a fan has a professional understanding about what happens to props and things um, has enough connections with um, with not just celebrities but people who are in a position to be both appealing to the rest of the fan base and also um, be able to benefit the organization by participating no it's that it's that split mind uh, schizophrenic mentality of yes being a fan yes caring about all that stuff but having the the uh, 
It's business savvy. Yeah. Uh, what business savvy I didn't have, I learned. But business connections that I you bet. had. Well, I didn't have as many. Interestingly enough, I didn't have uh, any connections or very few connections with what I'm having to do now. I had right. to make those. Right. But they had read articles about me or yeah. I just or just did a cold call. Most of it has been cold calling. But it also does help, I have to think, in some capacity mm-hmm. that you weren't just a fan. Oh, yeah. That you weren't somebody who was like, you know what? Even if you were a wealthy fan, you know, that you weren't this kind of dilettante who just decided that they were going to do this, that people could look at your resume and realize, oh, okay, this is somebody who actually comes from the industry. And, and, um, I, I think mean, a little of that, but most of it was looking at our board members, looking at the people who had actually stepped certainly. up. These people. But I think those you know, board members probably right. vetted you a little bit before they decided to step on. And so that is where it's important. It's not necessarily important, you know. 10 yards from the from the goalpost it's before you punt you know it's before you kick off it's before the game starts mm-hmm. and that <laughs> yeah, right. you know that these people that become so important to have as board members are going to be looking into you and, and figure out like who is this guy and so as every every person steps on the board every big name you know, every big fish catches a bigger fish type of thing. Yeah. That um that that's why it was important that you weren't just a fan, but that you know, Captain Daddy. I mean, you you had a pilot that you that you had produced right around the same time that this was all getting off True. the ground. Right. And so a fully animated pilot with um A list talent, um Ed Asner. Right. I uh, you know people who have won awards, who have been Oscar-winning films, um, participating in this project. So people are like, oh, well, this guy actually gets stuff done. And that's the most important thing, especially when you bring into perspective a kickstart. And so what we're going to do right here is we're going to transition a little bit because I think that anybody who's going to look you up and is going to look up the Sci-Fi Museum is going to see that this is an actual thing, that you you are participating in a lot of conventions, that there are conventions that are, are contacting you to fly you out and show props and to help raise money for the museum because they understand that it does everybody good, that it's this type of thing that is such a goodwill ambassador and you being, you're like a Stan Lee type, that you are such an enthusiastic and good ambassador for this project that um, it's good for them, them meaning people who run conventions or what have you, to uh, kind of, you know, tie their wagons to your, you know, to your wagon, um, to all be moving in the same direction. Well, Comic-Con and WonderCon and San Diego Comic-Con, yeah. they have, from day one, they have supported us yeah. and helped us get to the next step. There have been other cons as well, but let's face it, that's the, that's the Oscars yeah, of comic Yeah, that's the number one, yeah. And for them to support us and give us a booth every year, my God. Yeah. That, that's unheard of. And uh, and most of these conventions and, and even Comic Con, it's rare to get free booth space. Oh, rare! It's impossible. Yeah, you, it's impossible to get a booth space. Period. To pay for it's a it, seven yeah. year yeah. Peer, Wait waiting. List. Right. So what you had mentioned is that you didn't seem to have had so many connections in the sci fi world, but you definitely had the connections in the horror world. Because I did. You had Joe Dante. In films. Yeah, and Joe you had worked with Joe Dante mm-hmm. on a pilot for um, what was the title of that show? That was Greatest Show Ever. Greatest Show Ever, and um, that was an anthology show which um, had one segment directed by Joe Dante. Uh, you directed a segment, I believe, right? Uh, unfortunately, yeah. <laughs> and um, and you there was who else was directing in that? Uh, Stacy uh, Title. Mm-hmm. Um, 
uh, I there's a special effects guy. I uh, I can't stump man. I can't remember his name, mm-hmm. but yeah, it was there's basically just the three or four of us and a slick, very professional looking production. Yeah, um, a, didn't get completed right um, because money went away. But what was the producers was there? went away? Yeah, the producers <laughs> went away. Yeah, what was there was pretty good. There was some good stuff. Yeah, and so uh, things like that. Uh, there's there's a, a great history of of the start then stop and then finally reaching that that level of success that we can look at, whether it's, you know, one of the guys behind Rick and Morty, you know, is also behind Community, you know, that um, that Dan Harmon was yeah. the guy that had done, you know, the Jack Black superhero TV show that went to pilot and, and nothing ever happened from. And um, Dan Knopf is another good good example of that, yeah. who did Carnival. Yeah. And then he had like seven, eight years of... You know, th- false starts and, yep. you know, stop and start or not. And now he's the, uh, I don't know if he's called the head writer, but mm-hmm. he's damned close to it on Blacklist. Nice. Uh, Which I actually, one of the, the few shows I actually watch all the time. Did you see the one last season where was the whole uh, the whole episode is like the last I'm caught up last. to the end of season three. Uh, was last season season three? Or I no? believe so. Well, it's the one, it's all him. Mm-hmm. The whole episode is just him and he's going on this trip it's after the... On one of the other characters has passed away, yes. and I don't want to give out too much. Right, right. But he wrote that whole episode, and he he called me. He said, "Look, I don't know if you watch Blacklist, but watch this episode. Yeah. This is unlike any episode that we've ever done, mm-hmm. and it's rare for a mainstream TV show to get this episode." So yeah, and I'm a huge James Spader fan, anyways. Oh, great actor. Yeah. And um, but you know, and and he that's a good segue because Sean Cunningham, very well known <laughs> for um, for Friday the Thirteenth, did the New Kids. Which was an early starring role for for um, for James Spader, mm-hmm. but there's going to be prop, props that get offered to you by studios that you would have felt, well, this isn't really sci-fi, or this is maybe tangentially, but this would be much better for a horror museum. And I think that what had happened is you had been offered so many different props that seemed to be pointing in a different direction that it seemed like. You know, just the the easiest thing to do would be to set up a separate Kickstarter for a horror museum, or or the hardest thing to do would be. <laughs> yeah. No, let me without uh, there being a physical building for one, it's it's hard to then go out and be like, okay, this is a different hat that I want different money for. Can you put money in it? Yeah, uh, I just want to explain the reason for our creating a horror museum was very simple. There were a few elements. There there was the Fan of the Opera set that mm-hmm. was the stage was being demolished, so they saved the set. Right, it's the oldest movie set in history, nineteen twenty-five, twenty-four. Yeah, and there were other elements. There was the NASA did not want us and the people involved with in NASA, Lockheed Martin, all the space science people did not want anything sexual or horror or in gory their science fiction in museum. the sci-fi museum. It had to be family. And that annexes some big things. That annexes aliens. That annexes, you know. The thing could yeah, be considered thing, yeah. that. Uh, there's several other R-rated sci-fi movies. Yeah. But they're also, if they, I figure the the aesthetics of if something scares you, it's uh, if it bends, it's funny. <laughs> it breaks, <laughs> right. it's not funny. Uh, right, crimes and misdemeanors. Uh, anyway, no, that was the main reason, and we would lose their sponsorship and support if we pulled that. Mm-hmm. So I started asking around. I had people tell me it was the worst idea 
of all time to create a horror museum mm-hmm. because busloads of kids are not going to come to a bus- horror museum. And so I said, all right, how can we make it so there would be? So I came up with the idea of, ha ha me. No, I mean, I'll <laughs> give credit for the people that came up with other stuff. This happened to be in my schizophrenic mind. I said, okay, what if we have a left side and a right side of my brain where the left side is the classic horrors up to 1968 mm-hmm. and from Night of the Living Dead on, it's the... 14 and over side. Yeah. And that's where you get uh, Nightmare on Elm Street, Mm -hmm. Texas Chainsaw, Exorcist, and everything else. Mm -hmm. There's some bridge in the apps, like the Munsters and the Adams Family and Beetlejuice and Elvira. But I mean, there's also, you know, like uh, my birthday is is coming up. It's it's two weeks before Halloween. Mm -hmm. And um, I'll be 45 years old this year. And so I often associated my birthday with Halloween. You know, I could tell <laughs> that my birthday was coming when you'd see, you know, the little cardboard pumpkins on people's doors, yeah. you know, and and the Halloween decorations. And to me, the thing that really set it off for me, like a lifelong love of horror, mm-hmm. was Disney's um, Headless Horseman cartoon. Yeah. You know, the Legend of That's Sleepy brilliant. Hollow. And yeah. then I think seeing Snow White which, of course, is both of these things being made long before I was born. Right. But um, that there's such great horror elements to Snow White, uh, obviously a huge influence on Dario Argento and even his, his film Suspiria. Right. Uh, he points directly back to um, the animated lighting techniques used in, in, in Walt Disney's Snow White. Hmm. So there is this origin of horror in other places that plants that seed that grows this kind of October tree, if you will. <laughs> I'm going to use a, a, a Ray Bradbury um uh, reference, um, and again, Ray Bradbury, a guy that wrote science fiction and horror equally well, and um, his being more of a PG thirteen ish kind of brand of horror, but right. that was like our jumping point. So we would go from reading Ray Bradbury to reading Robert Block. You know, well, now it's Goosebumps. Yeah, and R.L. Stein would be Stein, that yeah. for this for this younger generation. I asked him to be on our board of advisors. Actually, uh, nope. he's too busy right now. But I'm, I'm uh, sure, yeah, this, he's got a lot going on. Great right guy, now. lovely person. I bet he'll come on board at a certain point, though. I, I think so. I think so. So um, we're getting close to wrapping up. So what I want to ask you is is to shoot, shout out some um, some social media. Where can people learn more about both the Sci Fi Museum and the Horror Museum? And then you can give us like a, a few highlights about you know what you're really really excited about, what you think is coming down the pike, and where they can meet up with you in person and, and get kind of a, um, an idea of, of, of timelines and those types of things. Well, there's HollywoodSciFi.org, S-C-I-F-I.org, or just type in Hollywood Science Fiction Museum. Any of those on Google or Yahoo will get you to us. Mm-hmm. Uh, the thing we have coming up for both museums, we've got the Aliens Power Loader. The full-size Aliens Power Loader. You were telling me about that when we were right. setting up this this interview. <laughs> right. So this is, you know, the... Um, we're going to have that at LA Comic Con, which previously was called Kamikaze, and yes. we're getting some Aliens actors. So that's that's the end of this month. Yeah, Lance, so Lance Hendrickson is coming, there, yeah. and so is... Uh, uh, the uh, the woman who played Vasquez and several we're trying Jeanette to get, Goldstein. Yes, yes, and we're well, trying to get. They're both also in Near Dark. Oh right! Yeah. Oh my gosh, I totally forgot yeah. about that. Yeah. So we're trying to get Sigourney, and we're trying to get uh, Bill Paxton, and also uh, uh, I can't remember or pronounce his name. Uh, Michael Bean. Michael Bean, right? Yep. So we'll see. We'll see who shows. But main thing is the power loader is going to be there for people to pose inside of, and wow. that's the first time in six years it's even been seen. Wow. And for the Horror Museum, um, we're it's hollywoodhorror.org. Mm-hmm. 
or Hollywood Horror Museum, and you're not going to find that anywhere else except, you know, with us. Uh, our board of directors is the best names in horror. Uh, the biggest, I mean, John Carpenter, Clive Barker. It's incredible, the, yeah. these people. J- Greg Nicotero. Yep. Um, a lot of Walking Dead stuff, I imagine, coming down the pike. I'm, and they I'm working with AMC. Too. Yeah, they do. I'm working with AMC. We're trying to do a long-term relationship, yeah. which is going to be incredible. Uh, because they don't see us as a threat. Right. That's the whole thing. The smart studios don't see us as a threat because we're educational. Right. And we're nonprofit. And we're not trying to say, hey, we're, you know, we're trying to encourage their shows and, mm. and grow. Someone that's been a big supporter of our podcast has been the Guillermo del Toro um, exhibition at LACMA, the At Home with Monsters. And the success of that show in a temporary exhibition at one of the most respected um, art museums on the West Coast has to send the signal to people who would have any doubts about whether, you know, as you said, teenage kids would show up to this museum to to, um, to visit, that a resounding yes. 100%. A wonderful, and I know several of those artists. Uh, Mike Hill is on our advisory board for the yeah. Horror Museum. Mike did Sculptor. the... Uh, right. Yeah. Mike did the uh, Bride of Frankenstein thing and also... The pieces that are in that show. Uh, yeah. Boris Karloff sipping his tea. Yeah. And, and the freaks figures. Right. The freak figures are by a man named Tom Kubler, mm-hmm. who is not in L.A. Mm-hmm. And he's brilliant. And these these amazing people, there's Howard Semph, who made the shining figures. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of these wonderful people. And that's the best way to show a horror museum, to mm-hmm. show these, you walk into the set. Because these people aren't around anymore right. or the props don't exist. And if you needed somebody to curate any art shows, I might know somebody. Who? <laughs> Who? Do do tell me. Uh, but no, it, things are moving, and thank God for it. I mean, it's just it's a wonderful thing. And this these aren't the Houston museums, you know. These right. Are, I, that that is the, one of the things that I think has been the greatest success um, emulator that comes out of this is that it's not about you. No. Is that it is about the organization. It is about the museum. It's it's about this this amazing product that is going to happen, which um, encapsulates and welcomes and educates. And it's I for think, the people too. It's not my taste. I may like or hate something. Who right, cares? Right. Is it something people want to see? Is it something that will inspire people? Mm-hmm. What a great place to end. So, any social media you can shout out? HollywoodSciFi.org and HollywoodHorror.org. Any and, Instagrams? Oh, heck yeah. We're all over the place on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, all those, all, all them good things like that. <laughs> well, perfect. Well, hey, man, thanks for joining me on my 50th episode. <gasps> yeah, kind of a, a landmark. This is the 50th episode. And you put our two ages together and you got 50. It's incredible. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, the um, again, uh, Houston Huddleston, thank you. Um, check us out. We're, we're actually closing in because this is the 50th episode. That means we're closing in on the one-year anniversary of the program. Um, we're not announcing yet who's going to be the um, the one-year um, anniversary, the 52nd episode guest, but um, you can catch up with us. Uh, Is it Houston. me? Is it me? Am I the 50th? Okay, You're the 50th. Okay, all right. Um, at, at the, um, the Stan Lee's Los Angeles Comic Con. Um, we will we'll have a presence here. Everybody on the Meltdown Network will be there as well. We'll be doing cross promotions across different shows. There will be giveaways. Um, so um, we encourage if you're in the LA area to stop by and check us out. So until next time, I have been Matt Kennedy. This has been Pod Sequentialism. Hello, this is Matt Kennedy from Pod Sequentialism. And um, what many, many of you may know that I, I do run a gallery in Los Angeles called La Luz de Jesus Gallery. 
And what you may not know is that it's inside Wacko, which is probably the greatest center of pop culture in the world. And it may sound like hyperbole, it's not. Um, you can, if you don't want to trust my judgment, you can listen to people like Kevin Smith, uh, James Gunn, uh, David Mack, um, all of whom will swear that uh, one of their favorite places on earth is uh, Wacko, the shop that houses La Luz de Zeus Gallery. Um, whether it's Blind Box Toys or Little Tchotchkes or art books, it pretty much is the place that you can get all of your Christmas shopping done for every possible annoying person to buy for that you can imagine. They've got everything, and I highly recommend that you visit them. You can visit them online at soapplant.com. You can visit the gallery at laluzdejesus.com, and that's spelled L-A-L-U-Z-D-E-J-E-S-U-S.com. Check them out and tell them Matt Kennedy sent you.